Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Palladium Podcast. I'm Ash Milton, Managing Editor at Palladium Magazine. Today, we're talking with Nicolas Villariel, uh, who we just call Nico. Uh, and we're going to be talking about his piece in Palladium 5. So, uh, as I'm sure many of you are aware, Palladium publishes a quarterly print edition. Uh, that print edition is an anthology of our best work on the topic for that quarter. And so for Palladium 5, we're looking at the idea of the centralized society. Uh, if you're interested in signing up to receive those print issues, you can see those, or you can sign up rather, at palladiummag.com slash subscribe. Uh, so these issues come out four times a year. They include custom art, uh, an anthology of new and old work, uh, of our best work on, on the given topic. Uh, actually, I'll rephrase that. Uh, they include an anthology uh, of original pieces uh, and some favorites that we've seen before. Uh, and we combine those with high-quality materials, with original art, and uh, we usually have launch parties in San Francisco and other cities. So if you're interested in all those things, again, sign up, palladiummag.com slash subscribe for more information. So, Nico, your piece in Palladium 5 was titled, and for listeners, this is on the site as well, How Capitalist Giants Use Socialist Cybernetic Planning. Uh, so people can see that on the site, they can see it in the print. Maybe before we start, just introduce yourself a bit. Uh, tell us what you do and what perspective you're coming at this from. All right, so um, I am a writer and an analyst. Uh, I work for a government contractor. Uh, I've also worked a little bit in government uh, in uh, banking regulation. But I uh, am very interested in uh, these... Uh, uh, the cybernetics, it, especially, uh, I was originally interested in it because of its role in uh, socialist history and in um, attempts to try to reform the Soviet Union, um, and also with the experiments that went on in Chile. And I really wanted to, uh, and I also saw these kinds of um, systems. I should back up and say that I've also been very obsessed with supply chains and logistics. And I think that uh, logistics is basically what runs the world. And, and we need to hone in on these things more and understand how they work, uh, because this is how, like, what makes everything tick. Um, so these systems of uh, what, what I talk about in the article is the relationship between systems that were experimented with by socialists in Chile and um, the systems that are used now by cutting edge, uh, very large capitalist logistic firms like Amazon, like Walmart, that um, have to tackle some very fundamental issues about how to get information up and down the supply chain in order to meet demand. Mm. So, yeah, this is obviously the interesting aspect of this piece, you know, uh, this this continuity between maybe a certain kind of structural logic that both socialists and people in the Western capitalist business world were looking at in this period. Um, you know, Cyberson, some of these first experiments were done by socialists, but uh, as we'll see, they've actually impacted our society a lot. Obviously, you know, we're not the first ones to see some interesting convergences between the two sides of the Cold War, um, you know, you have people like Kajev, you have a lot of people who've noted this before that in a lot of ways, the 
the Soviet Union and America, these two huge great powers of the 20th century, actually end up rhyming in a lot of ways in what they're attempting to do, um, you know, maybe especially in the earlier period. I think, you know, we're not going to review the whole piece here because uh, obviously people can read it for themselves. But I think for people listening to this who haven't read the piece, let's just maybe clarify what was Project Cybersyn? Right. So Project Cybersyn was an attempt by uh, Chile's uh, socialist uh, government in the 70s to uh, create a uh, planned economy, but without, but while avoiding the kind of really top-down command structure, very top-heavy structure of the Soviet system, and produce something uh, that could uh, really effectively meet people's needs and be efficient. And they did this um, by using, I mean, Chile was is still a developing country at the time and did not have access to um, a lot of big, uh, very useful computers. They ended up having to use these um, uh, this equipment that is more like a glorified fax machine um, to set up uh, an information network across the country that would transmit information about factories and orders and um, tr to coordinate uh, logistics and um, move goods back and forth. And this became very useful um, during a trucker strike that was organized. Uh, I mean, at the time, um, truckers uh, were mostly like uh, owner operated and they had um, like the, their own political power in guilds and stuff like that, or very opposed to uh, like uh, the socialist government. Um, and so with so much of the fleet um, occupied, like not being able to be used, uh, the government was able to use Cybersyn to um, coordinate production and uh, get around it, uh, which if they didn't have this, uh, the government might very well have been toppled at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, 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 there's the idea behind the system is obviously, you know, as a socialist government, they're interested in this idea of economic planning. But at this point, right, this is the 70s, the, what, the early 70s, people have seen the problems with the Soviet model of planning, maybe even with the Chinese model of planning to to an extent. And there's there, there's this awareness for people in socialist movements that if you're going to do central planning, those approaches to it are not going to work. And so the, the, the obvious uh, conclusions of that seem to be, first, you need to actually make the economy fairly legible to a you know to, to the state and to to committees maybe even on lower levels and you need to have information flow freely in that economy so you know i i think about this in relation to like the russian model um or, or you know poland hungary east germany and obviously you constantly hear these descriptions of massive amounts of waste uh of of, of labor time of resources People aren't talking to each other. Factory managers are hiding information or are basically uh, basing the decisions about how to do production um, on these sort of political incentives instead of actually, uh, you know, what's what's needed or there's shortages in, in goods and resources. There's basically a huge amount of chaos in, in those systems. 
uh, things don't align well. And the, the result is that, you know, after you have this big dramatic catch up and modernization, um, then you, you have stagnation. And, and obviously America at this point is starting to really just decisively outcompete the Soviet Union in production, especially for, for, you know, consumer and commercial goods. So that's, that's like the, the context here. That's the context behind Cybersyn. Um, but, you know, with, with the logic of computation here, right? So as you sort of describe in the piece, um, you have uh, Beer and Flores, you know, this cyberneticist from, uh, I, I think he had lived in Canada. I'm, I forget what country he's from. He, he, the, from uh, yeah, British cyberneticist. He's working with contacts in the Chilean government. And, and their ambition here is that they can kind of create this system which will allow them to do economic planning. And you've, as you pointed out, uh, it, it sort of seems to work in the trucker strike. Obviously, this thing is never fully implemented. Um, and, and, you know, it, it has these problems with the kind of hardware it's using. Uh, what's the ultimate fate of Cybersyn? Well, it was destroyed uh, by uh, Pinochet after he took control uh, in a coup. Uh, that killed Allende, the, the leader at the time. Um, so we never got to see what would happen to it. Uh, there was so much, and that's kind of why it, it is so mythologized in socialist circles today. Um, right. But, you can kind of, uh, you can read onto it, you know, what might have been if only it hadn't been destroyed. Right. And, but I think there was real potential there. And I think the, the experience that uh, Western capitalism has had since then speaks to what that potential is um, in like companies uh, like Amazon and Walmart. But even um, as I've been researching more about um, like the, the American defense industry, they've had to implement these kinds of systems too in its own, like in the internal um, uh, organic, what they call the organic industrial base, uh, which is like the, the part of the um, industry that's run by the government that uh, handles repairs and ammunition and that kind of stuff. Um, right. So, so just maybe let's just describe what's going on here at the top, more of a top level, right? You're mentioning Walmart, Amazon, Cybersyn is destroyed. The sort of whatever socialist computing would have been uh, is short stopped by the end of the Cold War. But there's this interesting logic that survives, and that's permeates our society today. Just describe that a bit. Like, what are we? What phenomenon are we talking? So we're about basically here? talking about how um, this use of uh, cybernetic electronic uh, feedback loops that are used to get around uh, what we call uh, the bullwhip uh, problem in supply chains. So, when in a traditional market, um, when you have a change in demand, that demand, um, the information of that the price information, the demand information is experienced directly by uh, the final good uh, seller. And then the final good seller puts in their orders um, uh, to whoever was supplying them with that. And then it goes down the supply chain to the parts, the raw materials and so on. So the information about um, the, uh, like how demand has changed has to go through all of these institutions um, in order, uh, and that takes time if it's just going through the market, um, and they have to, um, the adjustment to that, uh, like the, it, it's not, because it's not simultaneous, causes all kinds of delays 
and problems. And that's really what we are experiencing right now in COVID is, the is largely the inability to adjust supply chains quickly enough to meet the changes in demand. Um, and cybernetic planning is kind of a way to get around this uh, because it's telling, because the information about uh, 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 at the supply end of, of the manufacturing end and the logistics and the final demand end is all being simultaneously recorded and distributed across the supply chain to decision makers. So, yeah, the, the, the problem that is, you know, the, that this logic tries to solve is how, how, you know, in an industrial system where you have mass production, where you have super complex logistics that you're taking care of, how do you actually make it responsive to disruption or to chaos? How do you make it more resilient uh, as a system? Um, I'm interested to hear first, like, you know, obviously we, we, we see a more developed form of this today, like j just obviously with the basic application of digital technology in logistical systems, but we also see it in terms of, you know, how, how you discipline workers in a system like that. Um, you, you, you kind of see this weird pattern, this, this focus on automation to the point where people, you know, a lot of companies, I think will pretend that these systems are more automated than they are. You know, you, you, there's this incentive, like hide the human element, which maybe we can talk about a bit. I, I'm interested to hear like, what, what's the driving force of that overall logic? Like, is it just this decision made on the interests of people running companies? Or do you think that there's this inherent, uh, logic here that an advanced industrial society basically has to converge on one way or another? I think that um, the the automation aspect, to, to the extent that um, like you care about efficient, uh, well, in, in general, yes, you will see this convergence towards automation, that kind of stuff. I think that the undermining of that trend by like hiding the human in there um, I think that that's a logical, I mean, on the first part, humans, what, if you're just building a system to be as efficient as possible for, um, and you don't have input from workers, uh, that's going to be the natural, uh, end point because you, it's a lot of these systems and you see this in Amazon, especially that, um, the automation systems it creates are not made with workers in mind that it's why so many people have injuries on the jobs and stuff because they're made to work at the tempo of these mechanical systems. Um, th there is another aspect to that of like selling this marvelous product. Um, but I think that ultimately the, the, the suppression of, uh, of labor is, is, it apps is has been a very necessary part of capitalism for quite some time now uh since at least since neoliberalism i mean it's always been there it was kind of there was a compromise made in the social democratic era um but what really happens and uh this is something that i think we were i mentioned earlier with the unionization of amazon um uh before the podcast um that like this is kind of coming to a contradiction uh because we're, we're finally seeing the return of these really rationalized systems uh, with uh, the, like these cybernetic giants that I talked about in the article. And these are um, like 
really get going in the 90s and have really taken on their own uh, in the past 10 years or so. Um, and they have um, increased efficiency at by uh, kind of returning to this Fordist framework, um, which is like uh, um, having workers act in a very mechanical way in, in centralized production, like warehouses and so on, or uh, distribution centers. And this has uh, facilitated um, like one really great efficiency gains, but also a new kind of set of conditions, in my opinion, for uh, worker organization. Um, and this is uh, a contradiction that's playing out right now um, as unions, as Amazon's been unionized. Uh, right. So I want to I want to talk about that in a moment. Uh, yes. I just want to kind of focus a little longer on on this question of the actual logic itself, right? So right. you're, you know, like we think about the Amazon warehouse or, or the FedEx processing center um, operations like this, as you pointed out, they're using scale. And it seems like, you know, what else is the focus here? What else are they trying to optimize for? It's like minimization of error, being able to track goods and being able to predict uh, you know, things like arrival times, uh, be, being able to predict how long each part of the process takes. And in order to achieve that, what you need is standardization and homogenization. And you you basically don't care so much about redundancy in the system or about the fragility of the system. Uh, you, you basically want to make sure that things are tracked and that scale is being used as much as possible to cut down the costs of, of this overall structure. Um, and, you know, I, you obviously you can imagine other systems, like other, other, other logics uh, in, in other circumstances. So, you know, if you were in a war, uh, obviously you're, you're also going to be concerned about res resiliency and redundancy uh, in the system. You're going to be concerned about different parts of a chain of operations being somewhat autonomous from each other. So, you know, if one gets destroyed, another, you know, the, the other parts surviving can keep going. You you could care a lot about being able to set up the systems quickly and take them down, right? So, like, that can happen in war, that can happen in, in expeditions, uh, research expeditions. Uh, you, you could even imagine a system where the focus is uh, sort of artisanal control over different parts of the structure. And obviously, at that point, we're kind of getting out of the the sort of industrial logic as we know it. But I, I just give those examples uh, because, you know, the particular focus on scale and tracking and legibility that this system has is not the only version of this. And that being... So, so I'm, I'm kind of interested, given that uh, both socialist Chile and our society have converged on that logic rather than others, do you think that this is basically something necessitated by industrial society, let's call it, by by this mode of production that is also focused on scale and, uh, you know, glo global trade and so on? Well, I, well, three things, basically. One, I think that it is necessary if you want to be the biggest and the best. Um, if you want to be on the like the like this is the next step of um, being able to control production and operationalize it effectively to whatever needs you want. Um, two, I really want to hone in on something you said there that I think was very correct, 
that like this homogenization standardization is required in this um, process because it is true for machines, but it's also true for people uh, and how this uh, how these systems have been used. Um, and that and it's why uh, surveillance of people uh, of workers by the firm is such an integral part of these cybernetic systems as they've appeared in capitalism. Um, and that part, I don't think, is necessary um, in like the overall industrial picture. Uh, I think that this, uh, like that, this is the result of an adversarial relationship between the firm um, as a capitalist entity and um, the workers. Whereas in Chile, you had this was a part of um, uh, Beer's uh, brilliant design philosophy of uh, he was trying to integrate the worker into production, not just as a tool, but as an agent. And that he was uh, made the interfaces of CyberSyn as legible as possible, not just to um, like the, the managers, but also to the workers who are putting in inputs. Because it, the workers are also inputting information back into the system as a feedback loop. And if you have this adversarial relationship that capitalist firms do, um, you're going to have a lot of problems that require this overhead surveillance. Right. This is an interesting point because, you know, the, these firms often, uh, it's a weird relationship because the legibility is usually in 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 one direction um, toward, toward well, maybe two, you know, toward managers and then uh, toward the consumer as well. Um, obviously they're getting access to different kinds of information, but there, there, there's this thing where, you know, almost the more a firm is focused on being, being able to gather the right kinds of information about its organization, the more wary they are about keeping that fairly secretive at, at least the top level data. Um, and as you're pointing out, that's not a necessity of how this structure works. Um, maybe describe a little more like what is the idea here behind uh you know the the average worker the average participant or agent in this kind of system also having access uh to 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 this like to the the infrastructure of the system here how like how how would a fully developed version of beers's version of this be different toward the amazon version of this well, first i want to highlight um, like what you just mentioned in terms of the limits of uh, uh, created by the secrecy of the firm, because I think that that is very key to what's going on here um, in our present society. Uh, and this is especially true even for institutions as powerful as the Department of Defense, um, which has like these, these kind of cybernetic systems internally um, and even has at least some feedback with its direct contractors but it cannot, but that's still limited because of the, uh, the secrecy of the firm. It's necessarily adversarial relationship to other firms uh, through competition. Um, and uh, it is as, as a very, absolutely no way of getting to information about the supply chain below that, except through publicly available information that journalists are putting out there. Um, the, uh, uh, one of the uh, things with, um, like Beer's vision um, and in Cybersyn in general uh, was that fundamental socialist vision of uh, integrating 
uh, all of production into a common plan uh, that would allow it to um, uh, unlock some of that potential uh, that's lost by the adversarial relationship. Um, but more, I, I think, obviously, there's something also lost when you don't have that adversarial relationship, don't get me wrong. Um, but there is, um, within this, like, more vertically speaking, um, in between, like, workers and managers and stuff like that, um, there is this, uh, there is, I, I think you could make a Hayekian critique, actually, of the way capitalism does things, um, because workers have this very direct uh, knowledge and information that they're getting by being involved in production the way they are. And usually, uh, because of the adversarial relationship between the firm and workers, um, and, even, and not even even beyond that, just the gap between uh, personal knowledge, um, some of that information is lost because workers don't have, uh, aren't integrated as agents into um, the information that goes into decision making in firms. Um, or are, are not uh, agents in decision making. Um, and that, that is something that uh, the uh, Chilean version of socialism tried to hold up and is kind of, and I think is important in order to make um, socialism work more generally, if you, if you want, in order to take the cybernetic approach. Now there's, now that feedback loop is on one side, but there's also the, a further feedback loop that you have to think about, and that's with consumers. Um, and the, this is like what was so important to like the, the people advocating cybernetic planning as opposed to like the Soviet model, um, which kind of got left behind because it didn't converge on this, on this issue on the way that it used uh, computer technology. Um, it, uh, it is this possibility of being able to adjust the plan as you get this new demand information constantly. The Soviet material balancing system was very clunky. You had this plan that you basically um, had at the beginning of the year. You had to calculate all the inputs um, and what they, where they would be going. And then as soon as it was created, it was outdated. Um, and if you actually combine cybernetic planning with input-output, which is not what Chile did exactly, but this is one potential way of doing it, and certainly just having that information feedback loop allows you to adjust things in real time that the Soviet system never could. Basically, what's happening here is in, in the Soviet system, the plan is not adaptable to new information. Uh, and so I, I guess the argument being made here, um, like, tell me if this is correct, is that by opening up, uh, well, for, first, by just making the system overall more legible, uh, by by allowing you know the the average participant the average worker to understand uh, how the overall system is working to see to be able to receive updates about what other parts of the system are doing you basically make the whole thing more flexible and then instead of having this like you know one you know one plan that you just get at the start of the year that in instantly becomes outdated you can both update to match the original plan more and possibly the plan itself can update as well. Like, is that the general, on, on the side of like the socialist planners, this is how they're thinking about it? This is the potential? Is that, definitely that's all a part of it. There was one more thing, I think, with how um, it's not, the, 
a big part of the problem of getting information up the chain in the Soviet system was also an adversarial relationship between um, in enterprises and planners. And uh, this kind of more um, two-way feedback loop uh, is kind of a way to um, lower that adversarial relationship to get more accurate information from the lower levels, which is also uh, very important to this whole process. Right. You made a point about uh, competition earlier, and it's making me think of a way of discussing this this sort of, you know, the approach to like data and how organizations have secrecy that I've always found a little strange. Uh, you know, so today, right, the, the, I think the version of this that a lot of people are familiar with is open source. It's, uh, you know, anti-copyright. It's the idea that generally speaking, th this data that through legal measures we're able to keep monopolistic control over for certain actors, for society to work better, uh, this, you know, as much data as possible, as much information as possible should be open and accessible to everyone. And, you know, we, we hear the term like democratization kind of used for this. Um, but obviously what's also happening there is that you're increasing the possible competition that can occur, right? Like it's, it would be fairly hard in a society that had very open data for, for people to have advantages on the basis of having secrets, basically. Um, and I think this is interesting because it, from the perspective of this like top-level economic planner, it kind of makes sense, right? Because if you're a top-level planner, you do not want like particular enterprises or private organizations to be able to maintain secrecy. You want to have the monopoly on decision-making power uh, or, you know, I mean, I, I guess you delegate this, obviously, to to people like enterprise managers in, in this kind of a system. But, you know, the, the buck sort of stops with you. It's presumed that you you or the planning committee or whatever, right, ha have a sort of final say and ownership over the economy overall. And everyone else is kind of operating in something like a commons of information and resources. But I think that what I usually see on the side of especially new companies, right? Especially private enterprises where something more real is going on. Uh, you know, I'm thinking even in the early like 20th century, like things like Edison's labs, it's actually the opposite logic. You wanna have a monopoly over your secrets, right? Information that you're privy to. Uh, anything from like the findings from research to maybe information you know about the industry, like all kinds of information, you want a monopoly over that in order to be able to maximize decision-making control about your operations in the future, right? So there, basically, there's this there's this conflict between a a a, a sort of top-level economic planning entity and a lower level enterprise where the enterprise's ability to compete depends on being able to keep secrets. But the planner's ability to actually control the economy depends on the ability to have access to the information across society. And actually, I think that this is kind of a, you could even have this be like a critique of the Hayekian thing, right? Because Hayek's focuses on markets as ways to transmit information. But for I, I would say for, you know, the, the, the largest firms, the ones with the, the highest level of control, the ones with the most, you know, resources that they control that they can throw into research, 
they actually have that ability not because of open information, theirs or anyone else's, but because of their own ability to keep secrets. So I kind of want to just like lay out that general model of what's going on here. And, you know, my my sense is that uh, regardless of whether you have like management or workers controlling a particular enterprise, an enterprise that is not able to have secrets is not going to be able to compete and is going to cede its ability to sort of leverage resources into unique things that other enterprises aren't able to compete with them on, right? Where they can take risks uh, without regard to competition because other enterprises do not have the same information they do. Um, I, I, anyway, I sort of just want to lay that on you. And, and, and do you think that that's right, that that logic is actually holds regardless of workers or management having control? Or do you think that there is something else going on when these enterprises are under the control of like the system beers wanted? Well, I think that the system beers wanted is not just a, re- a, a different relationship between workers and um, and management. It's also when you introduce planners to the system and, or uh, like you can think of the market as like a big planner that um, in, in a certain way. Uh, and, and so it's a different relationship also between the enterprise and the planner as well. Um, it's so you, you have um, a kind of a, a compromise that's made um, a little bit by having this uh, back and forth. Now, certainly this has always been like, this has always been the case to a certain extent, um, whether it's a Soviet system or if you're a company on the market, um, of like you're putting information out about yourself in order to to sell yourself in order to get what you want, even if you you keep stuff quiet. Um, but I think that um, in in a, in a socialist system, you you might uh, it might be less necessary uh, to keep secrets, um, depending on what like the the model of of your enterprise is. Um, if if you want uh like a, if you're like a research lab um that's trying to come up with a bunch of stuff uh i mean the, so- the soviets were actually pretty good at coming up with stuff with coming up with inventions and crazy stuff because uh they had they put gave smart people a lot of resources to try and figure things out but what they had a big problem with was um actual putting these um uh, inventions and ideas into practice and into production um both to change production but also to create new products or what have you um and part of that was just because the plan was inflexible it it was hard to add new products but part of it was that managers didn't want to add new products because or or didn't want to change the way that they did things um, because it could mean if they make production more efficient it could mean lower budgets in the future Um, and one way that some ideas of how to get around this um are that uh you basically run how resources are distributed on an algorithm um and you can i mean you can even run algorithms without having computers and stuff you just have a set of rules that are followed of um that uh other computers allow you to do it more automatically um of uh, adjusting production um to meet demand uh I, for example if you um have labor tokens. I mean, this all gets into a bit more complicated stuff, 
um, but essentially if like uh, the the resources going into a good is outweighing its social demand, it can be redistributed and that kind of stuff. And you do that on an automatic level. Um, but there are ways, other ways in more general to discipline production to make it more efficient. Um, and cybernetics offers a way to do that through uh, like doing things in an automatic way and making it a part of the system as a whole in things that uh, enterprises like have to um, interact with like uh, in, in a way that's like analogous to money but it not um, but in, in markets but kind of in um, operating on certain different principles so my, my sense is that the way that information works in practice you know we've been using terms like information and data so far in this discussion but that's actually pretty abstract and that's you know apart from things like lot numbers say uh that's that's mostly not the data that's important for the 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 sort of the bigger picture operations of, of what organizations are doing um so i'm thinking here about what you said about you know soviets are able to give resources to inventors but once even when they achieve something there's no incentive to adapt them and it seems like one of the major differences with the american or the west you know the sort of broadly western capitalist system uh and you know the chinese iteration of that system uh the german system is that there's a tight interaction between organizations working on some problem and them also putting research into finding ways to improve that process, right? So, I mean, I'm, this is sort of a, an abstract way of saying it, but, you know, you, you look at Amazon, uh, they're working with different digital platforms. They create those digital platforms internally in order to make their processes in warehouses easier, uh, you, you know, their their overall logistical systems more efficient. And then they also use a lot of those platforms as products in their own right. And so they kind of take take uh, information from the market by selling them, right, by, by people outside the company using these platforms. And, and then they're able to kind of integrate that back and, and keep their internal infrastructure more disciplined and more efficient. In, in the German system, like you, you, you see this with engineering, with sort of hardware technologies, you have companies going to universities and there the government does play a role, right? There is a sort of more explicit economic planning. Funding is allocated for research, but the research is being done by people working actively in the field. And what usually happens is that those results get leveraged back into companies. Often, you know, often the actual researchers will go back to the companies that they worked for with the results of that research and apply it. And you know, there there's kind of just an understanding that you're leveraging public goods like access to um, information or or access to research facilities also in that situation. But the the sort of the practice of the thing and this. Um, the, the, this kind of ability to act on information and do research, those are very integrated. Whereas it seems like in what's happening in the, the Soviet system is that they're not really that integrated, right? And I, I, I sort of, I, I guess I wonder how in, in, this, in the Beers model of doing this, that would have been fixed. Like, 
it it doesn't seem to necessarily be the case that a planner is going to be more willing to cut budgets you know for enterprises that could be more efficient to force them to be more efficient like that's a political relationship right that's uh that's that's something that can very easily be acting on something completely different from from the economic logic of the enterprise so like i i guess my question here is like what what is the political culture then informing who acts on this information and how and why right that that seems to be what determines a lot of the the failures and successes of these systems so i think that it's important to think about cybernetic planning not necessarily as a bunch of like obviously at some points it will be political interventions just like there is even in the capitalist system in production um but uh, a lot of the planning that's going on in cybernetic planning isn't necessarily like a bunch of people coming together and deciding how much budgets are going to be um I mean, Chile still had money and um, markets going on, and there were uh, like money going into enterprise and stuff. One of the main models for socialist cybernetic production is one introduced by uh, Paul Cockshot and Alan Cottrell um, with, in their book Towards a New Socialism. That uh, like they have this idea of running an algorithm that, like I mentioned before. Um, is basically there's an end market for goods um, that, that gives you an idea of demand, um, and uh, if you're if you make products that are more in demand, you get more resources allocated to you um, with uh, automatically within the budget. Um, and when you have this kind of incentive structure, that you actually are getting more resources when you produce things that things want. Well, now you suddenly have an incentive um, to uh, make things more efficient. Um, you, in order to, you want to bring in these new processes and ideas into uh, your enterprise and integrate them into production, um, and you want to make things that are more desirable in general. Um, and that's kind of the idea behind it. Uh, that incentives do matter, and uh, that's that's a basic thing about economics regardless of what mode of production you're in so then what ultimately makes this system differ from something like you know worker-owned cooperative mark plus market economy between cooperatives right uh like if the idea here is something like worker control plus access to information i mean i guess you could argue that theoretically the cybernetic system or something is even more efficient than than things like price signals um, but is that the difference, or or is there something even more fundamentally different in Beers's logic of what's going on here? Well, the difference is uh, with it, it. It kind of comes down to what we talk about the bullwhip effect, uh, in that when you have like in in such a situation where you have a full cybernetic socialist society, um, you you the only market that exists is really for final goods. Um, everything else, once you know what the demand is for a good, you can adjust all of production through uh, like cybernetic information feedback loops. Uh, you no longer have to rely on market price signals to do so. Um, and there's also, I mean, b because of the way markets work, there, there are more fundamental things that go on in differences in society. So one thing that um, 
this branch of uh, economics called uh, classical econophysics has discovered, uh, which is kind of applying, uh, like the idea of this is applying uh, the, the the mathematics of uh, of an ideal gas and all those kinds of um, more statistical mechanics stuff into economics is that um, when you have a market, um, you have a uh, necessarily um, ec uh, a exponential, or rather I should say you have a um, entropy maximized distribution of income uh, in the economy because of the way that market interactions work. Um, if you, even if you just assume that people are making random kind of decisions about uh, what, like you can't know what people want. Uh, if you just assume that like they could want anything and they just have these exchanges randomly, then they'll have this incredibly unequal distribution of income um, that's a result of uh, market production, even if you don't have a capitalist class. Uh, when you have a capitalist class, you actually have a bimodal distribution of income in society. And uh, the, the, the far end, the capitalist end, is much more um, steep and uh, unequal. So, so your, your point there about en like entropy, can you just explain a little more like what sort of what is the equivalent phenomenon in production that we're referring to here or, or in economic decision making? Well, this is. Right. So this this point about entropy is, is a point about uh, market exchange. Um, but we should think about uh, I, more generally, I think we do need to think about economics and economic production in, in terms of entropy and uh, statistical mechanics and that kind of things. Because uh, fundamentally, what we're doing in production is uh, decreasing entropy uh, in in, inside the firm, basically, we're trying to organize things in a certain way that um, creating all of these identical goods or uh, ch changing like the very maximized entropy of the natural world into. No, I don't I, I wouldn't quite say so, but I would say um, like obviously we like we bring our own like judgments about like what these things mean on a normative level. Uh, I know that there have been right-wingers who say that, oh, because market exchange uh, maximizes entropy of income, this is a natural phenomenon and we shouldn't be concerned about it. Um, but I, I don't think that's the case. It's, it's a, because if you don't have market exchange, obviously you don't have a, uh, a maximized entropy income distribution. Um, it, it just didn't exist before general commodity markets came into being. Um, so I, I think that, uh, I mean, this, this is just all to say that there are, will be, uh, big differences between a cybernetically planned society and a society that is, um, run is still like lacks a capitalist class, but operates off of markets or even includes capital markets and, and the intermediary markets. Mm. But so I, I, I still think we're, we're a little unclear here on on what what the phenomenon we're, we're, we are referring to with entropy here is so maybe like give me an illustrative example here you know what what's an example of like a very high entropy income distribution economy what's causing that and then what does a low entropy 
company look like? It's, it sounds like you're saying that it's usually on the company level that this gets lowered and that production becomes um, mastered. So I, um, I think there actually is an analogous uh, way to think about this in that um, if you think about like uh, biology, right? Uh, in order to um, uh, the, the like life, living beings lower entropy. Um, we we have to maintain this kind of homeostasis, um, and it, it creates work in order to survive. Um, but everything, but how living beings evolve in interacting with their environment is a entropy maximizing process. In capitalism, firms are kind of like these living beings and um, the market is how they um, like the is the entropy maximizing process that determines how they change over time um, which is kind of the role evolution plays for ordinary beings creating adaptations um, and that's how that correlation uh, comes into being uh, right like companies are I mean, you can argue there's like a selection effect on on companies where the ones that best use their resources and circumstances are the ones that um, are going to survive at any given point in time or be dominant at any given point in time. Right. And in capitalism, this like because the information of how firms are um, made to adapt to like the larger conditions is expressed in money. Um, it also determines uh, whether you get to eat or not. And that's kind of the big problem that socialists have. Um, and the, 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 this information in a socialist system would be expressed as actual pure information of ones and zeros um, of, uh, of within like the, the cybernetic planning system. I, I guess my, my issue, you know, and, and this kind of extends to the, 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 the this application of scientific modeling and terminology to a lot of economic activity is that I'm basically increasingly convinced that it, you know, it strips the, the texture that actually matters off of a lot of what's going on here, like to, to the point where you could arguably, arguably be suspicious of a lot of these top level, you know, even normal economic measurements, obviously things like criticism of GDP, these are things I think most people are familiar with at this point. Um, the idea that that doesn't actually get to the, the the level of what's what's going on economically, but I I think you could even apply to aspects of the this large scale industrial logistical system that we're talking about, right? So, um, the you know the, the, there's this kind of like brute fordism that we could talk about going on here, where you you just kind of like try and maximize the scale gains over and over again. Uh, and, and kind of strip waste out as much as possible. But then you actually look at, uh, you know, I, this is an example I've given before in this podcast, but you look at like the, the Toyota and Taichi Ono interpretation of Fordism. And one of the things they always say is that the whole point here is to actually increase control of workers and participants over the system that they're working on. Right. And, and so in that system, the individual worker is actually completing multiple tasks on the production line, not just a single task like in this sort of, you know, traditional Fordist model that people talk about. And so there's 
there's this understanding and I don't think it's an accident that a lot of these guys are not coming out of like, you know, what we are now business administration programs or economics. They're coming out of actually working on shop floors in various industries, right? They're, they're, they understand the production process is like very tightly linked to achieving production of certain kinds of goods or to certain goals. Um, and I, what, what I see in this, kind of the logic of this logistical system is that you basically have all these very embedded processes turned into like brute data basically and my my concern with this is that i i suspect that this may actually be extremely harmful to the industrial process and you know kind of regardless uh you know i i don't quite know how shifting the role of workers in this process impacts this but certainly with with managers who are already a step removed most of the time or multiple steps removed from the production process and if you're in the logistics side right if you're doing what Amazon is doing and delivering things you're not you're not even in the production process per se you're you're kind of like you have this super powerful entity that is basically uh able to use like leverage the power that it has over uh, delivery over this form of logistics to now get involved in production but but basically like you 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 have you have entities that are not involved in a hard production process that are are now becoming kind of the main component um and and like the main forces of economic power in in our society and that delinking like the disembodiment from actual production and turning production into just data like regardless of that, if of whether that's Cybersyn or Amazon, that to me seems to be actually very dangerous for industrial society. And I don't know if what we've laid out here, like the the kind of more worker friendly model of this or whatever, actually solves that problem. So I'd like to hear what you have to say on this topic. Well, I think that um, for one to address the the kind of idea of of uh, resiliency and the problem of being like too efficient, which I do think is a problem. I think that uh, regardless of what kind of system you want, you need information about um, and inventory management controls, especially, which is a big part of all this, um, in order to build resiliency. And you can see this, for example, um, with the, the, uh, the War Stopper program, for example, that DOD runs which um, ran government stockpiles of um, all kinds of equipment, including like N95 masks. Um, and it ran the stockpile by uh, making a contract with industry um, that uh, they would basically, that um, like the manufacturers would maintain a big warehouses full of this stuff and the quantities uh, that they forecasted they might need. And um, that, uh, and rotate that stockpile with consumer demand. Um, so if you want to build these buffers and that kind of stuff, you still need to know what's going on. Um, and in a, a society that doesn't have that kind of information cannot even begin to build the kind of real resiliency um, to respond to shocks, except by uh, just letting a bunch of stuff explode and then rebuild afterwards. Um, and certainly sometimes letting that like that kind of creative destruction is necessary, but 
uh, on certain things like in pandemics or um, war or all kinds of eventualities, uh, you really need that kind of information and resiliency. But it, that's true. But that information, there's a form of this information that is very tightly linked to some actual productive process. And then there's forms that are kind of like just these weird, you know, abstract spirit forms of a market, right? And l l let me make a comparison here. You know, Amazon, a lot of how Amazon operates on the platforms that most people are using is what we have here is a marketplace. Amazon, I mean, Amazon is now providing goods of its own, but, you know, for most of its history, you had merchants using Amazon and you had consumers using Amazon. And what Amazon was able to do was build this extremely powerful platform for delivery, for um, matching consumers to buyers, for giving prices, et cetera, et cetera, right? But it basically the, 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 the functions of a market were what Amazon was integrating into its system. Let me give an, a different example here, right? Uh, Apple, um, when Apple is making the iPhone, it goes to Samsung and it goes to uh, Taiwan Semiconductor and it places these huge orders, right? And, and this this famously puts uh, um, it it puts Taiwan at the cutting edge of the semiconductor industry, and it allows Samsung to become like the leading maker of of, of smartphones, basically of that hardware. And you know, I'm sure within that system, they're using a lot of careful logistical management and tracking, right? I mean, you you have to when you're when you're operating and producing that kind of scale. But in this case, what what you have is like it's 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 a logistical system planning within the company, right? It, it's sort of it's more real economic planning in a sense, right? Uh, in in the sense that. All of these systems are very tightly linked to achieve a certain production goal. Whereas in the Amazon case, what you have going on is legibility that's kind of being used to like capture value from people using a digital marketplace of some kind, right? And and those seem to me to be very different applications of this, right? It's like are our producers changing their operations to suit the logic of a market? or vice versa, is this logistical system operating and getting disciplined by the logic that a producer has, even a large producer like Samsung. Uh, and and that seems to me to be like a very important difference here. And I mean, you know, maybe this this is a good time to talk about the, the sort of Amazon unionization example. Uh, I don't see how Amazon you know, unionizing, like, let, I mean, let's take the really radical version of this. Like, let's just say Amazon were to become somehow completely worker controlled. The logic of what Amazon is doing doesn't seem to change. So I, I would like to hear, you know, what, like, d describe to me what actually changes in this scenario where the workers at, at Amazon or, or in as any company like Amazon are more empowered in the infrastructure they're working on. Well, I think that, um, like, in order to become really empowered, it, it it would require some certain changes in how the way they how they do things. Uh, but I think that even like uh, unionizing as they are will have a very large impact to rationalize production within warehouses and um, make the automated systems actually a lot more effective um, by 
having some input and buy-in from workers. Uh, but it seems like the problem here is the relate like that the systems are the the systems can become more effective, but they're already built to basically allow the the company that sort of owns the market, you know, it, it, it literally owns like these digital marketplaces, and its its job is to capture value from those operating on them. And you know, who who knows? Maybe economically, that doesn't actually matter that much for a lot of normal consumer goods because you know, it's not like anyone really has monopolies over them anyway. And and maybe Amazon capturing that value and being able to leverage into something else or some kind of research or whatever, maybe that's good somehow. But I, I, I sort of haven't seen that argument made at any point. Um, so I, I, I guess that's what I'm getting at here. Like, what is the fundamental logic of Amazon that's going to change in in the case where workers are empowered in it as opposed to like, you know, things might just become a bit more efficient here and there. Well, I mean, if part of this is, I, I mean, you, you can hardly blame Amazon um, for taking advantage of this uh, market. Um, the, like, I mean, this, in order, if you really wanted to have a different model for Amazon, you have to, like, I mean, either they have to get into a different business or they have to, they have to really change our economic system as a whole rather than just Amazon. Um, but I, I mean, I think that um, if workers were in control of Amazon, we would see different management uh, decisions probably. And, um, but all of that would still be constrained within a market so long as you, we do have our economic system as it is today. Um, you, and I mean, there's something to be said about market discipline um, and the role that it plays even for large companies. Um, but uh, the, the, there are all kinds of disciplines that you can apply to enterprises, not just market discipline. Um, and uh, sometimes market discipline can produce uh, a very undesirable results. Um, depending on what the situation is. Right. Well, like, look, l let me... Um... Let me frame it this way. I, I think that th there's something that happens with the sort of the, the worker control instinct where we stop actually thinking about what production is. And Marx, I, I mean, to my understanding, when Marx is laying out the, the, the industries that he sees as productive, thing, things like, you know, transport and delivery uh, and, and even government itself, he does not see these things as value producers, right? He he sees them as like sort of, you know, they might be necessary in some sense, but they're capturing a part of the value that is actually produced. They're extractive in some way. And so there there's this weird, I don't know if it's a contradiction, but maybe it's just like failure to think about the question of like, where does the value actually come from? Um, if If you have this really, really powerful, like logistical delivery organization like say FedEx um, but that organization is not actually responsible for generating value in society then even if you're taking like this uh, a Marxist perspective on it 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 doesn't seem like worker control over that necessarily solves a lot of the more fundamental problems like do, do you think that's correct because it, it, it seems like the okay
I think that is correct. I think that's correct. I think that the only way to really get around that is to get information, not just on a specific firm, but on like build like a information feedback network for the entire economy and even maybe the global economy to a certain extent. Um, you need uh, like the, like this is, um, if, if you have information from like from raw materials all the way up the supply chain, um, you you make it possible to uh, really understand uh, how value is created, where, um, like what, I mean, you you can literally run input output tables for entire economies to tell you if we have more, like like uh, ten tons more of wood and steel in this, what more other things could we produce? And that's the power of um, like. Uh, right. Of, uh, like what's interesting about planning. that is that it's um, a lot more real <laughs> again than I think a lot of the numbers we're using. You know, I, I think a lot of people, you study economics, you have this experience of looking at, you know, a, a report from the 1950s where, you know, pe people are describing like, you know, uh, this year in Russia, they produced, you know, 40 million pairs of shoes. And in America, they produced this many million pairs of shoes. And in Russia, they produced, you know, this many loaves of bread. And in America, they produced this many loaves of bread. And like the, the, the implication for a lot of people is that this is a very clunky way of measuring production. But I sort of disagree with that. I actually think that this is way more, you know, way, way more real. And you're because you're actually looking at what is being made and what inputs are going into it. And then presumably, you know, what kind of labor is being put into it as well. Right. I mean, that is the real process of production. And these, you know, the the any value judgments about what should be getting produced are are downstream of actually having a sense of what that capacity is. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like that that view of how an economy is working seems way more accurate. Yeah, I I think you're right on the ball there. I I think that it even allows us to make certain trade offs that are very difficult to make right now and that we kind of have to play by ear that um because the principal budget when you're not dealing with money is labor hours um if because you can uh that tells you how usually how many natural resources you can uh yield how much uh, everything else you can have and it's also it's a, the most direct trade-off in economics of how much free time do you want versus how much stuff do you want and you can with enough information about how production works, you can make that trade off in a very um, somewhat precise right. manner. It's uh, and, and and I mean th this is like where I think it actually does get important to talk about what is the relationship to a particular or of a particular worker or manufacturer to uh, the, the the system that they're working in over which this kind of very advanced logistical network is overlaid and, and which it's assisting. That's why I think it is important to look at that, like what is the fundamental thing doing? That said, I do, you know, let, let, let's, uh, we, we've kind of discussed, like it, it seems like you can't just conflate the different productive processes here. You need to look at them, but let's, let's look at the, you know, let's assume that some, some section of, um, our economic production is actually helped and assisted by 
this this kind of advanced logistical framework, this very legible data generating framework, then there's this question of the worker relation to it. And I kind of would like to hear you talk a bit more about that and maybe, you know, what what does it do to the we could call it like the economic culture to the culture production. Like in 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 the current model, we see workers as these extremely disciplined objects within the production process, right? Like they're monitored in the delivery trucks and uh, it, it, it's, it, it's very physically demanding, it's physically draining, it's psychologically draining. Um, it, the, the worker is sort of actively disempowered in the process because the, the, the priority is to make sure the process overall is very predictable. But it sounds like you think that there's a version of this which is more, it, it kind of empowers worker agency and the agency of a participant more um, maybe just describe more what, why would that happen? Why, like, how would that actually improve the logic of how this thing is working? Right. So I think that it, it's not just possible. I think it's also would be a marked improvement in terms of the efficiency of such a system. Um, just because like one, as we just discussed, workers have access to information about production that, uh, management necess doesn't necessarily have. And two, um, it's right now there's that adversarial relationship which has to be uh, overcome through um, surveillance systems at a certain expense. Um, so I think that uh, without those things, if you have a system that actually integrates workers into these feedback loops, which gives them a, a actual power to uh, determine how they're making things in, in what manner, um, that this would have, like, this would be an incredibly agile system of production. Um, that, because right now, if, uh, and I certainly know this from my experience in the workplace, and I think this is a lot of other people's experience, if you're a worker that just takes down orders from people, um, you are necessarily not using your imagination a lot. You're just waiting to be told what to do. Um, and this is actively encouraged in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, if you em empower workers, uh, like as cliche as it might sound, to use their imagination to solve problems and stuff like that, you can actually make production a lot more agile and capable of meeting all kinds of different needs. Because workers are not just like tools that can be used in a very mechanical fashion, they are general intelligences um, who can be taught to do all kinds of things and also figure out things sometimes. Uh, and this is kind of also like the military, um, like the U.S. military doctrine is, is uh, and uh, this has been a development over military history for a long time, that when you have, um, like we, we, when you make small groups of soldiers able to think and act on their own, that's actually a very powerful fighting force. And it's a big problem of why uh, Russia, for example, is having so many problems in Ukraine because they don't have that kind of system. They have a command control system where they tell workers what to do and um, don't really are, aren't, aren't trained to use their heads, really. Um, and that's kind of the one of the big differences. But so then it sounds like the argument here is that uh, this this kind of empowerment actually increases 
the functionality and uh, the production, presumably, of the system overall. However, that seems to be aligned to the interests of managers and owners of the systems that currently exist. So then why does this not happen? Why do we have this like hyper-disciplining system that we do have? I mean, you can see it with Amazon right now why it doesn't happen. Uh, because if you give uh, workers too much power and agency, they, um, like, and I mean, it happens even if, I mean, it's a natural consequence just putting them all together in one place, really. Is it though? Well, but the the grievances, right, in the Amazon unionization thing is exactly the kind of abuses we're talking about, right? Like the the maybe the dysfunctionality of, of the system and how they're experiencing it. But it your argument seems to be that if if the system were functioning proper like a, a properly functioning system where both those grievances are addressed and overcome and the production functionality increases, it seems like the long-term interests are aligned there. So, I mean, I, I certainly agree that there, the conflicts come out of that in the short term, but why, why, like, if those interests are aligned, then theoretically it seems like we could imagine that even without any kind of worker initiative, um, you know, the, the, the owners and managers would update the system because it works better for them. Why does this not happen? So you're, there's a trade-off, it, sound, it sounds like you're, there's a trade-off between this overall functionality of the system versus the the power differentials between owners and management and, and labor. Is that correct? Like, is that the yeah. argument? Okay, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, th this is obviously like the, I, I'd say a, a pretty like classical Marxist analysis of what's going on there. I, I mean, I, I sort of, I don't know if I entirely agree with it, um, in the sense that, like, it's, it suggests a poor ability of management to condition what the interests of workers that they perceive are, that, like, we know isn't the only option. I mean, so, like, in, in the German model, right, where you have these, like, more family-owned companies, um, I mean, you, you even do have unions, right? You do have a fairly high degree of unionization in these traditional hard manufacturing industries. Um, but my my sense is that, like, the, the culture is simply not as adversarial. Um, I mean, you know, may, maybe, like, in the Marxist lens, it's still kind of, like, there, there's this inherent adversarialness that's kind of getting toned down or restricted in different ways, Um which, like, be that as it may, I mean, obviously, even on the individual level, there's, like, a, a mixed dynamic of adversarialness and collaboration between any worker and any manager, and and that can vary a huge amount. But we, you know, it's, it's, it, it is possible, in fact, for, for companies to condition um, 
not just the the like physical production but also i think the the culture and, and interest that employees perceive um you know th this is obviously a different industry but i think of like costco here where uh you you generally see reported like a a a high level of collaboration from workers and a high level of satisfaction uh even if there are these these other like you know somewhat inbuilt adversarial tendencies that you have to manage in the amazon case it's like that has accelerated right the 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 level of adversarialness we're seeing there and in companies like Walmart and like the big players of this logistical system are ramped up to a far higher extent than we have in a lot of other industries and that we see in a lot of other countries. So it seems like at least part of this is not just this inherent divide between workers and owners and managers, right? There's 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 something additional or something accelerating that uh beyond what's inbuilt. And, you know, I, I'm interested to hear what you think is going on there. Well, I mean, a lot of these uh, Amazon, Walmart and these kinds of systems are also kind of on the cutting edge of what kind of efficiency you can get out of these uh, systems um, and trying to and a part of that is trying to force workers to um, move as like fast as possible to keep the pace with the machines and um, basically to exploit them as much as possible. And that's if, what you have to do if you want to be the best capitalist. Um, and you can be a not as good capitalist and kind of come to some kind of agreement. Um, but if you want to be the best, uh, you have to exploit. Um, and the uh, and if you want to have that kind of labor input, it's that's not going to come about from that kind of mentality or situation. It's going to come about through uh, struggle um, it, and back and forth, um, and it's uh, even then. I think we've discussed what like the limits of what Amazon is capable of as a single firm uh, in our society. Uh, I do think that um, you you have to think about um, a, a whole distribution of possibilities in. Um, in, I mean, there's all different kinds of firms out there with different kinds of approaches to production and their own strategies for succeeding. Um, and some of them will take uh, lower profit rates and a certain kind of stability, um, and others want really high profit rates. And um, if you want to do that and you're in a competitive industry, the only way to do that is to uh, exploit your employees as much as possible. So you said something interesting there, which is that... Um... Uh, correct me if this wasn't quite what you meant, but it, it it sounds like you're you're of the view that you know we're like the WalMarts and Amazons and so on. They're actually kind of at the edge of increasing efficiencies in like the 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 system as it exists right now at the technological level. I mean, you know, obviously we're seeing like th there's clearly been some kind of massive meltdown in like the FedEx infrastructure in the past few years. Um, there, there, you have like these compounding errors all rippling out from the shipping crisis. So, you know, we, we see, we do see this top level breakdown, but is that kind of what, um, like, are you talking about this more situational or circumstantial maxing out, or do you actually think that we've reached like the limits of this system as it currently exists? I think we're close to the limits. I think that, um, 
And I think that there's a big difference between firms like Amazon and Walmart and firms like FedEx, uh, because Fe like Amazon, like these are the big cybernetic giants have much more general capabilities of what they can do. Um, and because of like the, I, I think because of those cybernetic capabilities, um, and uh, a big part of the problem, I mean, so, so there are certain advantages to having um, like workers having inputs and and having a certain stability, like UPS, I think, um, is heavily unionized in the industry and has not had the problems that uh, FedEx has. I think it's UPS. Um, and but at the same time, UPS is and UPS and FedEx are only UPS and FedEx. Uh, they aren't dynamic, uh, really, like cutting edge. Sure, companies. they don't have the maneuverability of a company like Amazon or right. Walmart. Mm. But I mean, th this this is a pretty interesting prediction. Then um, let let me ask it like this, right? Because we we touched earlier on this weird cultural dynamic of you know maximizing or over over hyping the the possibilities of automation and like weirdly hiding the human role that exists in a lot of this uh, and. I, 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 I don't quite know what the incentive for that is, but one theory is obviously that we have to, you know, for, for any company to stay successful, you have to be able to predict increasing efficiency and increasing production. And for this kind of company, that means, you know, in, you know, making the overall operation more efficient and functional. If we're, if we take the view that actually like, you know, internally, people are maxing out the functionality of of these things in ways that just you know automating or or you know optimizing like another part of the chain isn't going to fix because you've actually run the human component to the ground. That's uh, that seems like quite a, a, like that's a crisis level situation almost, g given how central these these organizations are to our economy now. And even to like increasing to the political power structure, so uh, just, I, I'd I'd like to hear just you elaborate on what do you think is going to happen there, like if we're assuming that the these these companies, the people controlling this infrastructure, have maxed out its development for now. What is the ultimate fate of that? Like, is there is there a decline? Is there a conflict? Is do we have to like break into some new logic here for this to work? Yeah, I think so. And I think that, and I kind of hinted at this in the article of um, that we really do need to expand those feedback loops to include workers at some point. And this, if it comes about in the West, it'll be because of like like the Amazon union and the struggles going on there. Um, I, but I think that uh, like one of the big problems uh, and to go with what you said about um, the uh like trying to hide the human and all this i think it comes down to the fact that there is an extra layer of coordinating information um that is very distorted in capitalist societies and that's capital markets which um do not behave the way that normal price signals do and um have like are are, are very related to appearances and uh, those kinds of things of trying to convince people with lots of money 
and um, with uh, basically trying to target that very high end of the income of, of where money is flowing in society to get more resources. And, and the way to do that is through controlling your appearances in a very particular way. The outputs matter much less in the capital markets in a material way. I want to touch on a final thing here before we wrap up. We're kind of getting to the end of this podcast. I asked you earlier about the political culture side of this, and let's, for the moment, lean into the the idea that it is, in fact, possible for um, the this system to become more directly informed and controlled by how it functions uh, to further the ends of workers actively involved in, you know, some kind of process of labor. Um, in 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 this system, instead of like just having the workers be disciplined as objects in that system, um, one of the things we talked about when this piece was being written was this kind of uh, you could think of it as like almost the Athenian model. So you know, for for those listening, um, one of the traits of the Athenian political system was that it was expected for workers to be able or sorry not workers citizens it was expected for athenian citizens to be able to perform various roles within the state and uh you know citizens could be chosen by lot uh to to fulfill certain functions um so it was this very highly active and participatory form of politics uh, and of running the athenian state where instead of having a person highly specialized, they had to be able to take on at least a few different roles, and they, you know, a citizen could be expected to perform different roles through their lives. And, you know, in in the process of work, you know, I, again, I mentioned earlier, you know, some of the 20th century industrialists, in fact, saw this process as something that was meant to actually ultimately restore, like, a wide breadth of control and possibility for how workers interacted with the system. Um, what does the culture of work become in a system where you actually have this wide access to information and to different parts of the chain of production as an individual laboring within that system? I think it it's, it's should um, emulate kind of that, uh, that Athenian model of, uh, of um, being able to to take on those different roles of being um, someone who's not just like a um, good person making um, the heads of nails or something or w whatever your particular role is, but being able to um, understand what's going on, to imagine the possibilities of what you're doing and how things could be different because you understand what it is. And um, one, and, and this is also very closely related to a proposal that was in, like, uh, towards a new socialism, the, the, the book on cybernetic uh, planning by Kantra and Cottrell, um, that there should be executive managers or people or, or committees that are uh, like boards of supervise or boards of um, uh, running companies today uh, that are basically chosen by lots and that you as an individual should be expected to have the responsibility to um, run things sometimes 
um, and that this is like the, every Athenian um, could be expected to serve in uh, in politics at some point or another, and that um, ordinary workers in this kind of democratic vision should be able to uh, maybe making executive decisions too occasionally. Um, mm. And that's kind of the, the democratic spirit behind it. So, you know, to take that Athenian example, one of the arguments that got made by a lot of the, you know, the classical political thinkers of that time was that this, th that level of trust within the state and of ability to call on people also required fairly small states, right? Small republics, small democracies. Um, you know, if, if we're going to stretch this metaphor, the nature of this system is that it is not small, right? It, it functions, it, it captures the, the value that it does because of the scale and the number of people involved in this. Doesn't that basically forestall, like, because, you know, like, let's, let's imagine this kind of lot process for workers. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's usually even with with you know general worker professionalism and so on it's usually not the case that you can kind of put random people in charge of things and and the whole operation will work as it did before better there are actual relationships usually at play here right there are relationships built up people prove their ability to lead uh th there's a bunch of like tacit knowledge that gets built up when you've been working on a a, a small team for a long time, ways of doing things that you can't just kind of replicate into a manual. Do doesn't that sort of, like, doesn't that conflict with the scale logic that's operating in these systems? Certainly, you'll never be able to get rid of experts and specialists. Um, even in the most democratic societies, well, in the most democratic industrial societies, um, if you're like hunter-gatherers, you don't need specialists. Um, but uh, if um, and, and these people like specialists and experts play certainly important roles, you might still need economists to be looking at the, the budgets that are coming out um, and be playing a role in creating them. Um, but I think that this kind of idea of democracy by lots would still operate on that smaller scale of um, like the, the enterprise, uh, the, the division that runs in the certain city that or uh, or the certain branch of production um like that's that might involve i don't know 10 to 40,000 people or maybe even 100,000 people that's kind of close to the size of Athens um you might have a lot of um like stuff chosen in that kind of random way um but on a larger scale uh the fact that you have these like cybernetic feedback networks does mean that you are capable of a lot more direct democracy of uh, directly voting on proposals and that kind of things it um, I think the pirate parties in Europe make a big deal about this that we have the technology to do this but we never really use it for anything um, and maybe there's potential there um, uh, and certainly there's no set way of going about this maybe um, it, it like the, the Chinese are pretty smart about how they uh, trial and error things and try things on a small scale uh, and to expand them. So maybe like there's different kinds of ways of doing this that uh, may be appropriate. Um, right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm interested in is what that does to the idea of ownership in, in the functional sense. Like I, I'm sort of less interested in here in the, the formal legal ownership question, but I mean ownership in the sense of 
um, control and investment within an institution uh, such that like you you feel confident that you're taking on the you know you're sharing in the risks and in the rewards of that institution's performance um, and you, you know to the extent that someone has control in an institution actively they do they do end up forming I think a closer relationship with it um, but on the other hand you know the 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 tendency in our society and i think this is true of of the walmarts and amazons as well they in fact drive this you know for most workers they do not have any such relationship toward an institution um any job that they have within the organization is obviously going to be short term there's pretty much you know most people in it are never going to see that much promotion beyond maybe one or two levels um and, and in fact you know there's obviously hard bottlenecks as you get up the chain by necessity uh, and and so the stru <clears throat> the structure is built up to kind of um, to minimize ownership in that functional sense for most people. Uh, on the other hand, like it, it, you know the culture you're talking about, it it's it theoretically I, I could see it increasing that that functional ownership. Um, <coughs> you know I, I'm reminded of uh, Wolf, our our editor in chief. You know he he has this take that like. Elon Musk is fundamentally a proletarian because despite owning SpaceX and Tesla and so on, he also like sleeps on the shop floor and is, is you know, very uh, to like the micromanagerial level involved in like the day-to-day -day processes in a lot of those companies. And so the relationship starts like blurring these lines between um, between owner and, and, and active worker participant in the system. Uh, but, you know, regardless of like where, where the coin falls on that, uh it it seems like if you have that level of like a, a real sense of ownership over the process you should start to see things like a decrease in things like job hopping through one's life i would think uh and i would agree be, with because, that because yeah what what you would have is basically like like if you have a sense of ownership over an institution sufficiently large then you know that that would transfer presumably into a much longer term relationship than we see for most workers today because the incentives are just different the relationship is different um so yeah yeah maybe go you're saying you agree with that uh i'd be interested to hear like elaborate on that may if you want to talk about other like what other cultural changes would you see shifting in in a system like this I definitely think that people would grow more attachment to their work, to their enterprise, um, and that for people who do want to take ownership, who have some kind of innate leadership capability or learn how to have it, um, that there's a potential to take ownership of a program or um, an enterprise in the sense that you're making decisions, people listen to you, um, you're allocating resources to uh, try something new or change the way that things work a little bit, um, and that these are these things happen even in the most bureaucratic kind of um, like stifled environment, um, and like the people can take ownership. Um, and actually, in certain ways, in bureaucratic uh, systems, there's a big potential for it because a lot of like ordinary people don't particularly care. So if you have that incentive, you can make a big difference. Um, and uh, the, um, I, I think that the culture 
would be um, like it, there would certainly be a lot more sense of responsibility, I think, over what happens um, if like there there is this genuine feedback loop because now um, you can see consequences for your decisions um, and you can see um, like what potential there is. Um, I think that people um, might actually get more emotional about it, uh, for better or for worse. Um, and I think that uh, that they would also, um, I think it might even be reflected in our media, in our writing of um, people like uh, work dramas suddenly taking on much greater uh, meaning and have impact of like uh, of not just personal relationships but um, how people change the world right yeah that that's an interesting point actually um I, I i think that in some ways is the most interesting part of this piece for me like thinking about those possibilities because you know i think obviously a lot of people i mean you know we're seeing it right now with with all, all the resignations from jobs and stuff and and you know the the sort of like perma work at home thing i mean i'm you know i'm i'm skeptical that that's actually a sustainable thing and i think it's largely undesirable but um to you know the the, the way that that's changed like work culture even more there there's this like complete disassociation of any kind of real like having a real relationship to the work that you do and the the nature of how our economy is structured and what kinds of organizations are powerful in it, I think accelerates that. I think there's a, a temptation for a lot of people to, you know, either they drop out or they kind of fantasize about like, oh, return to traditional artisan craftsmanship or what have you. And like, uh, you know, obviously I, I, I see the attraction to a lot of that, but I, I tend to think that the actual, the actual problem that has to be resolved here is how do you reconcile that ownership that ownership and actual um, control and participation to the industrial process, because I think it existed. I think that uh, the the actually transformative periods of industrial society have actually had more of that kind of relationship, um, particularly with you know some of the most well known industrialists and with the kind of workshops and laboratories that that existed in those periods. Um, and I think we either figure out how to actually reconcile that uh, in, in some new way, like may, maybe we are, have to push the industrial logic further in, in ways we don't quite know yet. But I think if we don't do this, then we're, we're kind of in danger of the thing just like grinding society down because I don't think we are reversing you know, the, the industrial process here. We're kind of, we have to figure out how to like, you know, push it into a more vital direction or we're going to be uh, like fairly badly damaged by its stagnation. And, and I mean, you know, Samo, Samo Boria wrote a piece for us arguing this, that, uh, you know, after if we have significant enough industrial collapse, we may actually just not begin the process again because it's such a, it depended on such a high level of different things converging uh, in history that you, you can't just replicate it suddenly. You can't just bring it back once it's in a high level of stagnation. So I, I think your piece, um, you know, in, in that sense was a, a very interesting argument and thought experiment.
Oh, thank you. Okay, I think we'll wrap it up there for now. Uh, again, uh, we've been talking to Nicholas Valario. Uh, the piece we've been discussing uh, is on the website. It's called How Capitalist Giants Use Socialist Cybernetic Planning uh, and is also available in Palladium 5. So we'll be continuing a couple more of these episodes of Palladium 5 authors. And again, if you're interested in signing up uh, and receiving four times a year our print edition of Palladium, uh, you can go to palladiummag.com slash subscribe uh, and sign up there or get more info. That's it for now. Uh, thanks, Nico, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Cool. And uh, we'll see you guys soon. Bye-bye for now.